Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace Church, Pasadena. If you can find your way back to your seats, we are going to spend some time together in God's Word. My name is Tim Owens. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And if you are just joining us for the first time, we typically preach through books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But we paused our series in the book of Acts in order to do two mini-series this winter. The first one was a Christmas series, which just ended last week. And then next week in January, we're going to begin a short series on what our denomination calls our seven shared values. Those are seven core biblical doctrines that help to shape and define what it means to be a Sovereign Grace Church, and Ron will introduce that series next Sunday. So what that means is that we have a one-week gap between the end of our Christmas series and the beginning of the series on the seven shared values. And as I was thinking and praying about this sermon and asking the Lord how best to finish 2023 and start the year 2024, I believe that God led me to Hosea chapter 2. As you know, every text of Scripture either points us to Jesus or prepares us for Jesus or tells us how to apply the finished work of Jesus to our lives. But there are some texts that more explicitly communicate the gospel to us. And Hosea chapter 2 is one of those texts. Ephesians 3.17 speaks of God's people being rooted and grounded in love. This is an agricultural metaphor God wants his people's roots to grow deep down into his love, to be certain of his love, to be influenced by his love, to be motivated by his love. And Hosea chapter 2 is about God's love for his people. It's my hope for myself and for each one of you that you will begin 2024 rooted and grounded in God's love. And by his grace and by the power of his spirit, I trust that God will use Hosea chapter 2 to accomplish that. So let's read the text together, and then we will pray and begin. I'm going to be reading Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 2 and going through verse 20. This is Hosea 2, 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born." And make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. 
for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were meant to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new, moon, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope, and there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to enable our hearts to receive the message that you have for us this morning from Hosea chapter 2. Please help us to apply the text to our lives. Please send us out of here motivated by the love, the staggering love that is displayed in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel in the mid to late 8th century BC. These are the years 
leading up to the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrian Empire. So they are significant years in Israel's history. In chapter 1, God gives Hosea what should be a shocking command. He tells Hosea to intentionally marry an unfaithful woman. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 uses extremely strong language. It calls her a a whore, a harlot, words that feel indecent even to say in this setting. And Hosea obeys God's command. He marries a woman. The text tells us her name is Gomer and that she is the daughter of a man named Deblame. And these are important details for us because it helps us know that this is a historical story, that this really happened. It's not just a parable. Hosea really lived this out. We're told that Gomer has three children, two boys and a girl, and some commentators speculate that perhaps only the first child was Hosea's. That's because with the first child, the text says she bore him a son, while with the other two, it merely says she conceived. And then we know in chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 2, verse 4, there's an explicit reference to children of whoredom. But whether the children are his or not, we know from chapters 2 and 3 that Gomer leaves Hosea perhaps multiple times to chase after men whom she calls her lovers, but we will dispute that claim in a moment. And in chapter 3, Gomer ends up in a form of debt slavery. But praise God that that is not the end of Gomer's story. What is the purpose? What is God's purpose of having Hosea endure what I can only imagine was a miserable marriage. Well, God tells Hosea his purpose in chapter 1 and verse 2. He tells Hosea that his marriage is meant to be a sort of living metaphor for the relationship between God and his people. As we will see, part of God's purpose in this metaphor is to warn us. It's to expose the true nature of sin. But the book of Hosea, it takes us much further than warning alone. The command to marry the harlot makes Hosea's message incredibly personal, does it not? Perhaps there are a few things more personally offensive than an unfaithful spouse. Friends, Hosea is not the story of a moralistic God telling his people that they have broken the rules. Hosea is the cry of the aggrieved husband. It is a unique and intimate look at God's heart towards his people. At bottom... Hosea is a scandalous, offensive love story. The prophet, a real person, Hosea, he paid a massive personal price to become a physical example of God's love for us. That is the main point of this text. 
our God loves the unlovely, and his love transforms the unlovely into something beautiful. God loves the unlovely. He pursues those who have been unfaithful to him. But for you and I to receive the full value of God's love, for for us to perceive the depth of the love that this text portrays, you're going to have to see yourself in the story. And you are not Hosea. You and I are the unfaithful spouse. If you will let Hosea insult you and offend you, that, that is, if you will let Hosea tell you what you are really like apart from God, then maybe you will perceive God's love for you more deeply than you ever have before. Our text gives us two main points today. Point number one, the human condition in verses 2 through 13. And point number two, the divine response in verses 14 through 20. Let's jump right into point number one, the human condition. In chapter two, the author transitions from narrative to poetry. In chapter one, he's relating the historical account of his own marriage, Hosea and Gomer. But in chapter two, we switch to a poem, a prophetic poem that applies the metaphor of Hosea's life to the children of Israel and via, through the children of Israel, to us, God's people, today. Now, the transition from narrative to poetry is a heartbreaking and beautiful transition because poetry is a, narr- is a form of literature that adds force and emotion to the point that it's trying to make. And in the beginning of chapter 2, this poetry is going to add force and emotion to the graphic accusations that God is making against his people. It's going to add emotion to the cry of the betrayed husband. Now, there is legal language here, especially at the beginning of each argument. So chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 1. The legal language suggests that this is meant to be a covenant lawsuit, or in this case, a divorce proceeding, where God is publicly presenting his case against his unfaithful spouse. The argument in chapter 2 follows a very distinct pattern in which God makes an accusation against his people, and then he says, therefore, and then he states the rightful judgment or consequence for their actions. So the pattern is very simple, accusation, therefore, judgment, oracle. And this happens three times, first in verses 5 and 6, then in verses 8 and 9, and then again in verses 13 and 14. I want to focus our attention on the three main accusations against the woman. And that's because it's in the accusations that the text helps us to understand how the story of Hosea and Gomer applies to us. At the beginning of chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4, God calls the children to plead against their mother. The relationship is so estranged that he won't even speak directly to her. 
He says, plead with your mother. And that word is a legal word. It could more accurately be translated accuse. I want you to accuse your mother because she has been unfaithful to me. And then in verse 5 and verse 8, we find the first two accusations. And they go together. So let's read those two verses together. Verse 5 and verse 8 of chapter 2. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And skipping down to verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. In verse 5, as God begins to explain what Israel has done to merit this response, he says, for she said. So note, we're, we're getting a glimpse into the woman's own perspective on her life. We're, we're getting her own understanding of her situation. We're getting the woman's mindset. And we're told that she thinks there are better lovers out there. She believes that there's someone or something that can meet her needs and desires better than God can. Her lovers are the ones who give her bread and water, wool and flax, oil and drink. But look at verse 8. She is deeply mistaken. Verse 8 tells us that it was God who had provided all of these things for her as a gift And I want you to note the subtle difference between the two lists of goods. The list of goods her so-called lovers gave her in verse 5 and the list of goods she actually received from God Almighty. The first list are basic necessities, bread, water, wool, flax. But look at the second list. It is lavish. It is generous. It is extravagant. Grain, wine, silver, and gold. So already we see that something is deeply wrong with the woman's perception. Her, her judgment is off. Her, her view of reality is skewed and twisted because so far she's run away from an extremely generous and faithful husband to chase after lovers who give her less than she had before. And my friends, It gets much worse from here. Look at verse 12. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I want you to imagine your sister or your daughter saying this to you. These are my wages which my lovers have given to me. Do you feel the heartbreak of that sentence? Folks, lovers do not receive wages. Prostitutes receive wages. This woman 
is being exploited. She is selling the most valuable and intimate parts of herself. Do you see the massive category shift that's taken place in the text? She used to have a husband. Now she has customers. She used to receive gifts motivated by love. Now she gets wages. She's no longer a wife. She's a worker. This woman has debased herself She is enslaved. And friends, the text tells us that this is a metaphor for our lives. This is a metaphor for Israel's worship of the false god Baal. It's a metaphor for a very churchy word, idolatry. And we need to pause here and we need to talk about idolatry. We need to know what idolatry is and how it functions in our hearts so that we don't end up like Gomer, so that we don't end up enslaved and debased and exploited, chasing things that can never fulfill our deepest needs and desires. I'm not aware of anyone in Southern California who is worshiping Baal this morning. But make no mistake, Idols are operating in our society just as powerfully today as they were in ancient Israel. What is an idol? Well, here's a very simple definition that I think is suggested by the text. An idol is anyone or anything that we look to, believing that it can do for us what only God can do for us. Now, we are notoriously bad at discerning our own idols. Our idols are more subtle than golden statues on the shelf at home. So I want to give you a short list of diagnostic questions that can help to uncover those people or things that are operating as functional gods in our lives. I want you to ask these questions to yourself, and then if you are very brave, if you're feeling bold this morning, I want you to sit down sometime in the next week or so with a close friend or with your spouse and ask them to answer the questions about you. And let me just calibrate your expectations for this exercise. No one can take an honest look at their own soul and walk away without finding evidence of idolatry. So, If you go through the questions and you think, I'm good, you need to read them again. Or you need to go to your spouse. She'll help you. (laughs) Okay, let me read these questions for you. These questions were very helpful for my own soul this week. What do you see me running to instead of God? Where do you see a demanding spirit in me? What do you see me clinging to and craving more than God? Where do you see me wanting something so badly that I'm willing to sin to get it or sin if I think that I will lose it? What makes me angry or despondent if I don't get it? Brothers and sisters, these questions are not meant to condemn us 
They are meant to set us free. Remember the context of Hosea chapter 2. The idols are the false lovers. You chase the idols and you end up in slavery. You chase the idols and you end up exploited. These questions, to the extent that they help us uncover some of these things operating beneath the surface in our lives, they will help us to name the false lovers so that we can expose them for what they really are and put them to death and walk in the freedom and love and joy that God offers to us through faith in Jesus. So to summarize, point number one was about the human condition, not just the condition of the Israelites in the 8th century Palestine. The human condition. The serpent deceived us in the garden. We are prone to believe that there are better lovers out there than the one true God. So we chase after all kinds of idols to meet our deepest needs and desires. And when we do that, we sin against God in an incredibly personal and offensive way, a way akin to marital infidelity, and we end up wretched, exploited, and enslaved. We end up as spiritual prostitutes. How should God respond to people like us? What do you think you deserve from him? That brings us to point number two. The divine response, verses 14 through 20. Now, I want you to remember what we said earlier. This text is written in the form of a legal argument. It's a lawsuit. And that argument has a pattern. Remember, accusation plus therefore plus judgment oracle. So in verse 5, the accusation, you left me to chase other lovers. Verse 6, therefore I will hedge up your way with thorns. Verse 8, you use the gifts that I gave to you as offerings to Baal. Verse 9, therefore, I will take back my gifts from you. But folks, the final iteration of this pattern takes us into new territory. Look at verses 13 and 14. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. Therefore, therefore what? What do you deserve? What do we deserve? This is a lawsuit and we are guilty. We deserve divorce. We deserve judgment. So what does God do in verse 14? Therefore, behold, I will allure her I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. She forgot me. She took the gifts I gave to her and gave them to other men. She took the most beautiful and valuable aspects of who I created her to be and sold herself in a brothel. Therefore, I will allure her. I will take her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. My friends, this is the God that we serve. A God who pursues 
and loves the unlovely. A God who humbles himself to go into the brothel and win back his bride. The reconciliation that we see in verses 14 through 20 between God and his people is described in intimate, even romantic terms. First, in verses 14 and 15, God is unmistakably wooing his people. This is a courtship. And there is an emotional progression in the text that I think should be instructive for us. Where does God take her to renew her love for him? He takes her into the wilderness to speak tenderly to her. The wilderness is symbolic in the Old Testament. It is a barren and desolate place. In this case, it's a place where they can be alone, undistracted, away from the cacophony of the voices of the idols who have drawn her heart away, a place where he will have her full attention. Verse 15 names this place. Do you see it there? He names it the Valley of Achor. And maybe your Bible's footnote tells you that means the Valley of Trouble. This is not necessarily a place that she would want to go. This isn't a place that you and I typically choose to go. God is not taking her on vacation. Do you see what's happening? God is taking her into the wreckage of her life, the wreckage of her hopes, the place that has been trashed by her own sinfulness. And just there, just there in the valley of trouble, he's speaking tenderly to her. Look at verse 15. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Right there, there I will plant a vineyard. God will plant a vineyard in the valley of trouble. He will make that dark and broken valley, the wreckage of a ruined life, into a garden, a doorway of hope. And look at the effect that it has on the woman. The text says, she shall answer as in the days of her youth. The NIV used to translate this, she will sing as in the days of her youth. The the translators are trying to capture something of the joy and the innocence that we commonly associate with youthfulness. But this woman is anything but innocent. The text is saying that God's love is somehow going to restore for this woman. Remember the first half of the chapter. How do you restore innocence for a harlot? But God's love is somehow going to restore a youthful innocence for her that will allow her to respond to him in joyful worship. Then in verses 16 through 20, the courtship image intensifies and it becomes more formal. Verse 16 is actually a play on words. The the literal reading is, you will call me husband and no longer call me master. But the Hebrew word for master or Lord is also the name Baal. 
And so God is saying that there will be a new level of intimacy between him and his people, that his people will no longer call him by the relatively formal word master or Lord, but they will call him by the intimate word husband. And that new level of intimacy and love, what impact is it going to have on his people's idols? It's going to completely drive idols out of their hearts and minds forever. The next verse says that the Baals will be remembered by name no more. That's the power of God's love in your heart and in my heart. God's love is of such a depth and quality. It is so compelling. It is so fulfilling that if you let it, if you will go out into the wilderness with him and listen to him speaking tenderly to you, then your idols will fade out of your life because nothing will seem as good to you any longer as the love of your Savior. This is the first time in biblical history that God refers to himself as a husband. The first time. Given the context here in the book of Hosea, this is a shocking revelation, is it not? God's people are at their very worst in this moment in biblical history. It is just in the moment where his people are acting like harlots that God chooses to say, I am like a husband to you. In verses 18 and 19, God says that he will make a new covenant. In verse 18, a new covenant with the land. But in verse 19, it's a covenant of marriage with his people. Look at verses 18 and 19. No, go down to 19 and 20. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me. God's going to repeat himself over and over this word, betroth, betroth, betroth. I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. The Hebrew word betroth carries with it the connotation of paying the bride price. So, in fact, sometimes in the Old Testament, this word isn't even translated betroth. Sometimes it's translated pay. I will pay. I will pay. And look what God is going to pay as the bride price for his people. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. God is providing exactly what spiritually adulterous, unfaithful people like you and I need in order to enter into relationship with him. His own righteousness, his own justice, his own steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. And then the end of verse 20, it ought to take our breath away. The end of verse 20 says, and you shall know the Lord. Many of you are probably aware that the Hebrew word for know is used to describe marital intimacy. It's a full knowing of the other person. This is the consummation. This verse points to the consummation of the love between God and his people. But how surprising and radical and shocking is a verse like this in the context of Hosea chapter 2. This is a love beyond anything 
we can experience from the so-called lovers out there in this world. Scripture presents the concept of knowing the Lord as mankind's highest possible joy, the most valuable and meaningful relationship that you and I could ever experience. Psalm 1611 says this, in his presence, that is the Lord's presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The Apostle Paul says this about knowing the Lord. What, how valuable is it to the Apostle Paul to know the Lord? He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. This is the comparison. Everything in your life, on one hand, on one side of the scale, knowing God. Knowing God in the sense that Hosea chapter 2 and verse 20 speaks of knowing God on the other side of the scale. Knowing God wins. The value for Paul, what he had tasted in the intimate love of his Savior in relationship with Jesus Christ was so good that everything else in his life in comparison to that was rubbish. And many of you know that the Greek word for rubbish there is much stronger than rubbish. And I'm not going to say it. That is how valuable knowing your Savior is. Folks, this courtship and marriage metaphor that we find in Hosea chapter 2, it not only highlights the tender love of God for his wayward people, but it also helps to shed some light, help us understand the core problem of the human heart. It was always a heart problem. It was never a rules problem. God didn't come to his people to make sure they obeyed the rules. He came to win their heart. But in order to do that, we were running dead away from him toward lovers who were going to exploit us and leave us enslaved and unfulfilled. Our hearts desired things that were going to hurt us. In order for him to win our heart, God had to bring everything to the relationship. You and I brought nothing to the table. We can do nothing to pay the bride price. He must provide the righteousness, the justice, the steadfast love, the mercy, the faithfulness. He has to give it to us as a gift. It can't be earned as wages. But how does he do that? How can he make the harlot righteous? How can we ever overcome our own sins and shame to enter into a relationship with him? Let me ask you a question. Do you really believe, and I, actually, I want you to really think about this. Do you really believe that you, after all that you have done, after all that has been done to you in this broken world, do you believe that anything could restore your innocence? Do you believe that you could become so innocent that you could sing 
before God as in the days of your youth. About 730 years after Hosea's ministry, a boy was miraculously born to a virgin, and angels came to announce the birth. And when that boy, Jesus, grew up, God sent a prophet named John to announce Jesus' ministry to the people of Jerusalem. And John used an interesting title when he was announcing the ministry of Jesus. He called Jesus the bridegroom. In the New Testament, the divine husband is physically on the scene. The groom stepped onto the stage of world history. And this groom does not condemn the wretched, unfaithful woman. Instead, he obeys God in every way that she failed to obey. Achieving a perfect righteousness and purity that he can then offer to her as the bride price. Then he allows himself to be brutally murdered, taking the consequences that she deserves so that there's no longer a death sentence hanging over her head. Justice has been served. She can now be fully and freely forgiven for the atrocities that she has committed in running after idols instead of the one true God. And Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that this is how God has demonstrated his love for us. This is how he wins the heart of the harlot. This is how he takes you and I out into the wilderness to allure our hearts back into relationship with him away from the things that would only hurt us. This is how he speaks tenderly to us as he sends his only begotten son to die for us, the harlot. And all she must do is respond. Respond to the magnificent love of the Savior. We respond by turning away from sin, turning away from idols, and trusting this Husband, no one is more trustworthy. The Bible calls this process repentance and faith. How should we apply this text to our lives this morning? First, for those of you who have not yet repented of your sins and turned from your own way of life to trust and follow Jesus, I want to encourage you to think very honestly about the things that you are chasing. The woman in Hosea chapter 2 was chasing things. She was chasing lovers. She thought they were going to meet her deepest needs, and she ended up exploited and enslaved. What are you chasing in your life this morning? And are those things delivering on their promise? Are they really fulfilling you? Hosea is meant to warn you 
to warn you that when you chase anything other than God, you will end up where Gomer ended up, exploited and enslaved. Nothing else can satisfy your soul like Jesus can. You were made for relationship with him. The worship team can come on up. Secondly, for those of us who are Christians today, I have in my notes some thoughts about uprooting idolatry, and I believe those thoughts are faithful to the text. But as I was driving here this morning, I believe the Lord impressed upon my heart that the application for his people in Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena this morning is his unconditional love. You see, Hosea chapter 2 has a lot to say about idolatry, but it has very little to say about you and I freeing ourselves from idolatry. In fact, nothing. It has nothing to say about you and I setting ourselves free. That's because we can't earn it. We tried to do that. We tried to earn wages. We know where that leads. No. If you're sitting here in Christ this morning, it is because of sovereign, unconditional, impressive, massive love for the spiritual harlots that we are. Perhaps you came in here this morning more aware of your struggles with sin and temptation than you are aware of God's love and grace for you. Perhaps you came in here this morning more aware of the challenges in your life than you are aware of the love of the divine husband. Let Hosea chapter 2 allure you. Come back to a space a wilderness space where you can hear the voice tenderly speaking to you. Jesus came for you while you were an enemy. He came for you while you were still in the brothel. That doesn't mean your ongoing struggles with sin are unimportant. They're not, and you should kill sin, and you should uproot idolatry in your heart. But what it means, brother, sister, is that God's love for you is absolutely unshakable. If you're facing challenges in your life, sickness, decisions that are perplexing to you, if you look into 2024 and you see difficult days ahead, let Hosea chapter 2 give you the confidence that you are standing on the foundation of an unshakable love. This husband is not going to let you down. He is going to meet you in the challenge. He is going to provide. He is going to rescue. My prayer for us as we walk out of here today is that we would walk into 2024 with our roots growing deep into the magnificent love of God. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are naturally hard. We have been deceived just like the woman in Hosea 2. We have run after all kinds of things that we thought would satisfy us, that we thought would meet our deepest needs, and they have left us broken and enslaved. 
Oh, Lord, send your spirit to help us perceive and believe in the love that is portrayed in Hosea chapter 2. Oh, Father, soften our hearts. Some of us have been walking with you for decades, and yet if we were honest, sitting here this morning, we would say we do not feel loved. The noise, the cacophony of our lives has drowned out the voice of our Savior. Oh, silence those voices right now, Father, that we can hear the message again that you have come to save the harlot. Your love is remarkable. Your love is deep and nothing else can satisfy like it can. Help us to believe it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.